0: I had a really bad reaction to the steroids. My skin like started peeling off of my face in like chunks. Like my for months, my skin was just like oozing red. I couldn't put makeup on. I couldn't use products. Like I could barely splash water on my face without being in immense pain. I was like, who am I if I don't have beauty? And I felt like no one. And that didn't feel good.
1: Jessica DeFino writes about the pernicious influences of beauty culture in a newsletter that has earned the praise of Dua Lipa and shot from 2,000 subscribers to more than 50,000 in the last year. Jessica is a journalist who used to love using beauty products until she used so many that she got dermatitis and her face started peeling off. Now in her substack The Unpublishable, She writes searing critiques of the beauty industry and the social media trends that are driving the beauty obsessed to depression. Today, we discuss her uncomfortable experience with the Kardashians, her struggles in trying to write a book, and how her mother's breast cancer shattered her world and set her on a new path as a writer. Welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie, and here is Jessica DeFino. Jessica DeFino, thank you for joining me on The Active Voice. Uh, I was reading your Twitter feed earlier on and I have to ask, did your parents really consider getting you plastic surgery before you even started preschool?
0: Oh, my gosh. Yes. I hope my parents don't listen to this because I don't want to make them <laughs> feel bad. They were doing the best. Um, but yeah, no, I have very sticky outy ears. Um, and they were like even more extreme when I was a young child. And yeah, it was a conversation in my family of whether or not I should get autoplasty, have my ears pinned back before starting school so that I wouldn't be made fun of. And yeah, they ended up not doing it, which I have had different reactions to at different points in my life. I think when I was an adolescent, I was like, why didn't you, why didn't you get me this surgery when I could have had it before people like knew what I looked like? Um, but but now I'm grateful that it didn't happen.
1: Would that have been a normal thing for the culture you were growing up in at the time?
0: I mean, I don't know. I have definitely looked into this surgery um at different points in my life. I remember before I started college, I really wanted it too. Like I wanted to go away to college and not have to think about, you know, wearing my hair up or just being judged, you know, after being sort of made fun of for a really long time as a kid. And yeah, I think it is pretty typical for the surgery to happen to younger kids because it's easier to sort of like mold the ear when you're younger. But I don't know. It's not something that I really ever heard about other people having done. But yeah, I think that's been in the back of my mind for probably my entire life and my entire career. Just like this, you know, I had this chance at changing what I looked like completely and how would it have changed, you know, how I was treated or who I become.
1: And now you're a Busey Rice And you're not just a a typical beauty writer. You deconstruct the industry. You demythologize beauty culture. And you've been doing this in numerous forums. You write for mainstream magazines and uh, news sites. You've got a substack called the Unpublishable. Dua Lipa has endorsed you and asked you to write for her. And in this last year in particular, it seems to be a, a breakout year for you where you've gone from sort of a like, a not particularly well-known freelancer. It's a cult favorite commenter on um, beauty trends, the beauty industry. And I've read somewhere that you said that you're not anti-beauty or anti-people who are uh, taking part in beauty industry practices, but you do want to tear down the beauty industry, but only so you can help build people up.
0: Yes, exactly. I I sort of refer to myself as anti-product pro-people, And when you really start looking at some of the systems that have contributed to the development of industrialized beauty and some of the downstream consequences of having this very sort of strict set of cultural beauty standards that are perpetuated and promoted by the beauty industry, you start to see that it's maybe not um, the healthiest system to be a part of. So yeah, I'm really interested in looking at the systems behind industrialized beauty Um, but I always like to point out that like the reason that I do this work is because I'm so passionate about beauty as a concept. You know, I see beauty up there as like beauty, freedom, truth, love. It is so just integral to our lives. It is a human drive. Uh, we crave beauty. We need it. Uh, there's a reason we crave beauty. It enriches our lives, but just what the beauty industry sells us is not actually beauty. There's a huge disconnect there. And I think that's why it's so unsatisfying and has such uh, negative physical and psychological effects on, on a lot of people.
1: Yeah. And we'll get into that. There's lots of rich material there. The reason I gave that sort of long preamble and introduction to who you were, coupled with the question about the preschool consideration for surgery, is that I was wondering to what degree having that in the back of your mind as you've grown up has pushed you towards examining this industry
0: yeah i mean in the beginning it really pushed me towards participation in the industry and an obsession with physical beauty for sure so yeah the the plastic surgery was always sort of in my mind from from my youth i was in beauty pageants when i was a little girl i was like miss servile petite And participated in like the Miss New Jersey pageants and things like that. And I was also very into community theater and beauty was a huge part of that. Like probably my first experience with makeup and beauty practices was like for the pageants, but also to like be in the theater. And like, I really learned how it can create a character and create this confidence. And when you put on, you know, a certain lipstick or foundation or eyeshadow, you can become a different person. I really saw it it as part of this like transformative process. And I thought of that in a very positive way. And that's why I like pursued a career in beauty. I pursued a career in like the celebrity space. And I was very much into like, you know, beauty is empowering, like changing how I look is body autonomy. And that all felt very like positive for me at the time. And then, yeah, I had a really big perspective shift after a couple of things happened in my life. And I was able to sort of take myself out of that and step back and look at the beauty industry from like a communal perspective, a collective perspective, like a systemic perspective and and really see how these things that I had thought of as empowering had actually been a destructive force in my life. And then, you know, looking at the data, I could see how they had been a destructive force in in a lot of people's lives, especially women's lives.
1: So what were the things that led to this perspective shift?
0: I think the big thing was working as an assistant editor on the Kardashian-Jenner official apps. This was in 2015, and and all five of the Kardashian-Jenner sisters were launching their own apps. I worked for like a third-party company that was creating the content for these apps, and it was sort of the first time that I had been really, really immersed in the celebrity space and in the beauty space. And I was really excited.
1: Yeah. You must have been thrilled to get a job like that relatively early in your journalism career. It seems you get to be close to these mega famous Hollywood celebrities. You're in Los Angeles. It's just all right. Like, how were you feeling when you got that job?
0: I was so excited. And I mean, I loved the job itself. It felt very, um, creative. I felt like I had a lot of creative freedom to come up with sort of some of these like off the wall ideas. And primarily I was writing for Chloe's app and her voice was so fun and funny and I I loved doing it. But the more I was exposed to sort of like the behind the scenes working of the creation of a beauty standard and the promotion of a standard and the sale of a standard and seeing how that was affecting like the consumers that we were really trying to target with this app content sort of started shifting my my perspective and I started questioning like what am i actually promoting and and how is it actually affecting people um at the same time it was the first time in my career that beauty brands started sending me things for free because they wanted them to be written about on the app so suddenly i had access to all of these like expensive, high-end products that I had never before used in my life. And I was so excited about them. And I sort of just got really, really into skincare. I was using a ton of products. And I think the combination of using all of the products and then just also having like a really high stress job, you know, it was 24 seven, we were always on call. You know, if you made a mistake, it was actually the most famous women in the world making a mistake and you would get, you know, appropriately reprimanded. So it was just like a lot of stress and then a lot of like physical stress on my skin from the products. And I developed something called dermatitis. I was put on topical steroids for it. I had a really bad reaction to the steroids. My skin like started peeling off of my face in like chunks, like my, for months, my skin was just like oozing red. I couldn't put makeup on. I couldn't use products. Like I could barely splash water on my face without being in immense pain And it sort of led me down this path of, okay, one, like, how do I heal my skin without using any products? Is that even a possibility? And then two, it really made me examine who I was when I didn't have this armor of beauty products. Because when I felt like I was ugly, I felt absolutely worthless. You know, I called out of work, I didn't want to be seen in public, I stopped dating. I went into like a really deep depression. I was spending so much money on on anything that promised to help cure me. And yeah, it was kind of like this, these twin crises of the skin and of the self. I was like, who am I if I don't have beauty? And I felt like no one. And that didn't feel good.
1: Isn't that metaphor a little bit too obvious and on the nose? In a in movie, it would be unbelievable that your face literally peeled off and that's what broke your enchantment with beauty or the beauty industry. Yeah.
0: It was almost like I had to get to that extreme in order to sort of re-examine and reconsider like the, the values that I was living and the things that I prioritized in my life. And yeah, it was very extreme and it felt very extreme.
1: Going through that. Do you think that more people could get to that perspective that you now have had they had an extreme experience like that? but that most people are not going to have extreme experiences like that. And so they continue living in their illusion.
0: Yeah. I hear that in the feedback a lot. I'll usually get like one of two things I'll get, um, well, you don't use any beauty products, so you don't understand what you're talking about. Like you are just blessed with, with good skin. So I can't trust you. And then I'll have to dive into the history and be like, no, I've, I've actually been on the extremes of both sides of using all the products and using none of the products. And I, I do actually have a really balanced perspective. Or I'll hear from people who are just almost like offended at the amount that I think about beauty and, and will like accuse me of just being like superficial and caring about outside appearances too much. And and basically say like, nobody thinks about this as much as you do, like you can calm down about it, but mm-hmm. there are people on, on either end of the spectrum, you know, and and I would hope that they all could get something out of my work.
1: Yeah, the most exaggerated place I could push this to, because you know, cards on the table. I think you're doing something very important, the demythologizing beauty industry and the beauty products and the way that people obsess about this. Um, and social media has got to make it all the much more of a crisis, and some ways, you know, more difficult to to address. But you know, the most extreme place I could put this is that it's almost like you died on the cross. <laughs> and then, uh, and then you could, you know, come back from the dead and help lead people out of the, out of despair and, uh, you know, to the promised land. And I wonder if people, I wonder if some of your, some of the people who are discovering you and, and falling in love with your perspective and falling in love with your writing, as seems to be happening at, at a pretty rapid rate in this current moment, I wonder if people see you that
0: way. I don't know, but it wouldn't be like an inappropriate metaphor, really, because the beauty industry and beauty in particular for a long time has been messaged as this sort of ethical ideal, as this moral imperative. Um, It has borrowed a lot of tactics from religion and Protestantism and Catholicism in particular. Um, You know, even when you look at the language of the beauty industry, you're like, it's a miracle product. It's the Holy Grail. It's a skin savior. That language is really embedded in The beauty industry. So yeah, I do have to laugh at that uh, comparison there. But yeah, I do think a lot of people could probably relate to it when you really start to deconstruct your relationship with beauty and how it has functioned as almost almost like this ethical or moral um, imperative in your life.
1: So you've become very well known for uh, writing about that experience you had uh, with the Kardashians. You're an assistant editor on the Kardashian-Jenner official apps, I think, and working for this uh, content agency that served them. And you're making sort of $35,000 a year doing that job. It sounded like, you know, backbreaking work isn't quite the right phrase, but maybe mind-breaking work. You're constantly on call. You're constantly under the gun. Um. Once this these apps launched, you're having to be responsive to emails from the the famous sisters, and you wrote about this. Uh, you published it on Vice. Um, it was not quite a year ago when this went out, and you did a Twitter thread. I remember that went alongside that, and both things blew up. I wonder why did you write that piece, and you know what did you make of the response to it?
0: Yeah, I was surprised at how big that that Twitter thread got. I was surprised at how well it was received, actually, because usually when you have a tweet go that viral, you usually get some like pretty, um,
1: (laughs) it's not always pleasant,
0: (laughs) not so nice responses, but almost all of the response to it was was pretty positive, um, which was exciting for me. And then a a ton of, of editors reached out and were just like, would you like to write more in depth about this? And I thought about it for a little while, like there were a couple of months, I think like maybe two months in between the tweet thread. And then when the vice article was published, because I was thinking like, how deep do I want to get into this? Cause this story does have like the potential to blow up even more. And the more details I put out, you know, breaking an NDA, all of those sorts of considerations that went into it, but it was really great to work with vice. And they were very open to me drawing a parallel between the exploitation of my labor as a worker by the the company that was running the Kardashian Jenner apps and the way that the Kardashian Jenner sisters exploit um, the aesthetic labors, uh, the aesthetic labor of their fans and followers. Um, and that was really important to me. Like, I didn't just want to talk about the labor issues of creating this content, I wanted to talk about how that translates to the beauty industry, the standard of beauty that people feel compelled to emulate. The way that it is affecting um primarily women's physical health, psychological health, and why, um, just like the myth of meritocracy, which is what you know sort of kicked off that whole Kardashian news cycle where it right. was she... like, "You can't want to work anymore, and I work hard as if that were responsible for her success. I wanted to draw a parallel between that right. and the beauty myth, this idea that if we are beautiful enough, we will finally achieve success and happiness. Um, and and how neither of those things are necessarily true and how um, an elite class sort sort of exploits our hope in both of those things. Um, And it was really exciting that that vice was down for that.
1: That piece of context I neglected to mention there is that Kim Kardashian had recently been quoted in a uh, big magazine or something like that, saying that the secret to business success for a woman is to like work your ass off, Mm -hmm. which seemed to be a sort of, Totally deaf or blind to her own kind of advantages in life, and how difficult it was, particularly in this current economic moment, for people to get to get ahead. And maybe you felt that a little bit as well, not only from seeing what it was like to work for her family, but to sort of struggle as a as a freelancer and writer and try to figure out how to make a life as a as a writer in this really difficult environment is that a fair comment
0: yeah yeah that's more than a fair comment i mean i worked so hard i've never worked harder than when i was working on the apps and i went through some of the lowest points of my life there too like there were times when i had to call out of work because i didn't have enough money in my bank account to put gas in my car you know the hours were long the demands were high and the money especially for los angeles was just not really there and there's this idea that I think is ingrained into us or at least was ingrained into me um that if you put in the time, if you put in the effort, it will all pay off eventually and you just have to like deal with being underpaid and undervalued for, you know, a certain amount of times and then it'll pay off. And yeah, I just had this realization that if I was going to continue in the industry in this way, like it really would never pay off like this was not going to be a path where I could have like healthy work hours and set boundaries for myself and also make like the bare minimum amount of money I needed to make in order to survive in LA
1: and what was the result of that thread for you and then publishing that story and vice how has it changed your your life and career
0: I mean it had a huge effect on my Substack. That was kind of mm. the the biggest draw for me. I was amazed at cuz you know you always like promote something under a viral tweet. You'll be like, "Okay, well, since everyone's paying attention, here's blah blah blah." So I did a couple tweet threads and and I turned it back to my work and put a link to my Substack and like you don't usually expect too much engagement from that, but I got 10,000 new subscribers just from that one tweet. Wow. And that w- was huge for me you know both in like the number sense and also just in the mental sense of like wow people are paying attention like maybe this is something people are going to start caring more about so yeah i do think it it really gave me a bigger audience and more than that gave me an audience who had context for where i was coming from and what i had learned and where i had been and it sort of lent like more of a legitimacy to to my work maybe so there's that. And then there's also like the crushing pressure of knowing like more people are paying attention to you, which is something that I really struggle with. You know, I had these like grand illusions of fame when I was a lot younger. Um, I just, you know, I wanted to be famous. I wanted to be known. I wanted to be a singer. I studied music. Um, songwriting was like my, my writing of choice back in the day. So, like as a teenager, that's all I wanted, just be like a famous singer-songwriter. And now I really struggle with how many people I want to reach and how many people I want reading my work. And it's, you know, I found a little bit more satisfaction in, in not having the widest audience. So it's like attention that is always there. Like I'm always excited when there's a big surge in subscribers or followers or people who are paying attention to what I'm doing. And then I'm also just very scared and feel um, a lot more pressure to, to, I don't know, please everybody.
1: Yeah, why do you feel that conflict? It seems like what you would want and need to be successful with your mission, which is tear down the beauty industry to help build other people up. What is it that gives you that feeling of fear?
0: Um, I think the feeling of fear really started where in 2020, I published a story in the New York Times about how people weren't getting manicures as much during the pandemic, and it was not well received. What happened it just got me a lot of online uh, hate from people within the beauty industry and like specifically within like the nail care industry because the, the nail care industry was struggling at the time because yeah, people weren't going for manicures. Like salons were closed and a lot of people were like, this is, you know, kicking the industry while it's down. Just really upset that I had, had written about this and I got like death threats. I got like thousands of messages on Instagram. I got a lot of like tweets, even from like peers and colleagues that I had respected, like saying horrible things about me. And it really affected me. It really affected my mental health. And it's not to say that those comments were sometimes without merit. Like I learned a lot from the experience for sure. But I also learned that I have a very thin skin and I take everything really personally. And I just hadn't built up the skills to like withstand um, public attention. And so, yeah, ever since since then, I have been equally excited for people to discover my work. And then there's also always like a pit in my stomach of just like this means more people who might not really like me. And I just I need to be liked. I need to be validated. I'm human. You're a theater girl. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
1: If you don't mind me asking and you don't have to go into it. What was some of the effects on your mental health of that experience?
0: I mean, it was just a really tough time for everyone mentally. I think this was probably, in I think, middle pandemic. So we were a couple of months into the pandemic. Um, I had just gone through a divorce. I left Los Angeles. I moved back home. I moved in with my parents in New Jersey. Um, a lot of my freelance contracts had sort of been cut off because a lot of media companies were not funneling money into into freelancers at the time so i had lost quite a bit of work so i was like struggling in every area of my life you know like i was in my 30s living with my folks divorced moved away from all of my friends finally got this huge job at the new york times like i mean one article but i had never been published in the times before it felt huge after months totally. of really struggling to get freelance totally. work and i mean it felt like a career defining moment for me and then it was not well received and people had a really negative reaction to it and it sort of like shattered my sense of reality because i had felt so confident about the piece you know like i thought i did a great job i had researched it for a really long time i had you know written it and edited it you know 20 times before i sent it to my editor i was so happy with it and just sort of the disconnect between my thoughts on the piece and its reception um, really got into my head. And I was like, what if I don't know anything? Like, what if I am just, I've been wrong this whole time and I'm wrong about everything. And he, yeah. I, so I, I ended up deleting all my social media for a time, like, or just deleting the apps off of my phone. I didn't log into Instagram for maybe like six months. And I almost haven't posted on it since. Like, I've never really gotten back on. Yeah, I stopped pitching because I was just like, no editor is going to want to work with me after this. Like, is that true? No, it wasn't true at all. But in my head, it was. And I was like, so I'm just embarrassed almost. Um, so, yeah, it was just like a big retreat from public life for a number of months before I felt like well enough to get back out there, I guess.
1: And so you're looking at your life and you're looking at your career at that point, this disappointing reaction to the new york times story has happened recently divorced in the middle of a pandemic uh living with your parents again you're looking at yourself and your life at that moment what was your plan for picking things back up again did you have a plan like what was your response at that moment how how did you think you were going to get forward from there
0: i had no plan i really wanted to write a book. I guess that would have been, that was the plan right around this time. Um, The past two years of my life had been consumed by like putting together a book proposal, writing out the sample chapters and finding a literary agent. So this was probably like late 2018 around this time. And the first agent I reached out to was like my dream agent. And they were like, unless you have 10,000 followers on Instagram, nobody is going to buy this book. So I of course dedicated the next like year and a half to building up my Instagram following got like super sucked into that but I was like if if it'll help me sell a book whatever. So I hit the mile that you know follower mark I started pitching to agents again I got an agent we sent out my proposal I got a book deal and this was all happening around this time so I was like okay I'm going to focus on just writing my book. I'll stay at home with my parents. I'll write this book. It'll take, you know, a year, a year and a half. And then this will be, you know, sort of my project. So that was the plan. Uh, and then my mother got sick. She was diagnosed with breast cancer at this time. And it sort of just like shattered my whole world. I like found it very difficult to care about writing about beauty. I was like, how can I, how can I write about beauty and skincare when there's like an actual life or death situation happening in my life? Um, and that sort of combined with all of the other stuff, combined with the divorce and the pandemic and and leaving my home and and all of this really sort of threw me off track. And, um yeah, the book was the plan. The book has not happened yet. Hopefully it will happen. And then, yeah, in the midst of all of that, I was like, well, maybe a newsletter that sounds like a low lift thing that I can concentrate on and not feel too much pressure and be in control of. And it will give me like space to like, one, write the book and two like care for my mother and, and be there with my family without having to go through um, all of the time consuming aspects of freelancing, you know, just like pitching, begging somebody to think you have a good idea, <laughs> going back and forth on how it's structured and researching it and interviewing it and all of that. And then, you know, waiting to get paid for two to three months sometimes.
1: And, and then getting paid a pittance. and it's, uh,
0: yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was like, okay, all of my plans have have failed thus far. Let me try something that seems like pretty easy for me to maintain. And yeah, that's when I started the newsletter.
1: So by the time 2022 came around, you had a couple of thousand people on your mailing list. You wrote about this recently. Mm -hmm. By the end of 2022, you had 50,000 plus 53,000 subscribers. How did that happen?
0: Man, I don't know. (laughs) I'm shocked. I, I remember like making a vision board at the beginning of 2022 and putting 25,000 subscribers on there. That was my goal. And it seemed like an outlandish goal. And to like more than double that is mind boggling to me. I mean, I think there were a couple of things like, of course, the, the viral Kardashian tweet and the Vice piece were huge. That got me a, a huge amount of subscribers. Like you mentioned before, Dua Lipa did a little piece on me in her newsletter and that you know, gave me a little surge, which was incredible. And then, you know, not to sound like a, an ad for Substack or anything, but I think like a lot of the tools that you have put in place, I mean, I've seen huge growth from the recommendations in particular. Um, I think like probably at least a quarter of my subscribers are coming from recommendations from other Substack writers. Um, so that has, has been huge for me as well. And I'm, I'm so Thankful for that, and so thankful to like be able to connect with those other writers.
1: And what's the effect on your psychology of having an, an audience uh, that invested and that large?
0: It feels good. It feels really good. I feel cool. I feel self-sufficient. <laughs> I feel independent. And I also feel like uh, terrified almost every day of just like, oh no, what if it's bad? What if I said something wrong? What if I didn't actually, you know? Present every possible angle of this argument and i i don't know i it, i don't know that that will ever go away sometimes i think that's just like a side effect of um growing up on the internet and like twitter culture where you know you can tweet something out that has nothing you know about x and somebody will be like so you mean you don't care about y and that has definitely um invaded my my mind and my writing for sure. You know, it, it's just in my head on a loop. What are all the possible arguments somebody could make to this piece? How do I address all of those arguments in the article ahead of time? And then when you hit publishers, always that moment of like, Oh shit. What if someone points out something I haven't thought of?
1: What are they going to find? What yeah. are they going to get me on? And it's
0: not only like, um, like an individualistic sort of, Oh shit someone's going to call me out sort of thing like i am very worried about you know having a limited perspective and not considering something that is actually really important and inadvertently hurting people and i i just i don't want my work to ever hurt anybody i i only want my work to help and yeah that's it's just a it's just a a fear that i don't know i think is in me and probably a lot of like internet writers
1: what is your relationship with social media like given all these things? You said you quit Instagram for a while. You basically don't post it anymore. I noticed your Twitter account is is locked. Like how do you how do you choose to live on social media?
0: Yeah. I mean, I would say my relationship to social media is um pretty unhealthy. I am obsessed with it. And because of that, I have to put some limitations in place for myself or I will get sucked in. Um so yeah, I haven't posted to Instagram in quite a while, probably at least a year now. I still have my profile there just because like eventually when this book does come out, it'll be nice to have, you know, people to promote it to. So it's, it's there, it's, you know, languishing and yeah, I try not to pay attention to it. I will log in every once in a while just to do a quick scroll and see what's happening in in the beauty space because so much of the beauty industry happens on Instagram right now you know, the most obvious example of, of Instagram face. So like to be in touch with my work, I do have to to be there to a certain degree. Um, but now it's mostly as an observer and not as a poster.
1: Hang on, what's Instagram face?
0: Oh my gosh. Have you not heard of Instagram <laughs> face?
1: I, I don't use Instagram and I try not to learn about what's happening on Instagram. And I do not know what Instagram face is.
0: So Instagram face is the phenomenon in the past, probably like five years of people changing their faces via, you know, makeup techniques, cosmetic treatments, injectables, and surgeries to more accurately reflect their Instagram selves. So the selves that we construct with filters, uh, Photoshop, Facetune, all of those things. So, oh, so they
1: want to look like they look on Instagram in the world. Yes, and so they put yes. stuff and into their faces.
0: Yes, it's a very real phenomenon that has been um, driving the growth of the beauty industry uh, and specifically cosmetic injectables and surgeries for the past five years and definitely within the past two years. Like people um, are consumed with this need to reflect their like perfected digital selves. So Instagram face is kind of like the big one, but there's also like TikTok face and and Snapchat Face and and all of these like smaller micro trends. But the idea is just that a lot of what's driving the beauty industry now is this obsession with emulating your digital avatar.
1: What's Twitter face? It's just if your mouth is contorted in a permanent snarl.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Thankfully, there is no Twitter face, which is why I'm still active on Twitter. But yeah, (laughs) I think that was also part of it for me of why I needed to get off Instagram is like it felt so counterintuitive to be doing all of this work um trying to dismantle beauty standards and then being mm-hmm. on Instagram and being inundated with these unrealistic images of of what I could look like or what someone should look like or what you know is currently being defined as like beautiful and healthy mm-hmm. um and it, it's it's sort of a, a mind fuck. Excuse my language. You're to
1: say the f word on this podcast. Yeah.
0: For me, not only in my work but in my life, like I'm very susceptible to those kinds of, um, to that kind of conditioning. You know, it was very important to me for a long time. So, like extracting myself from that is mm. definitely something for for my own mental health. But yeah, I feel like I do have to sort of be a part of it in order to like report mm-hmm. on the beauty industry in, in an accurate way. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm on there sometimes, and then. Twitter, I have been on private for a while. I'll like unlock sometimes if I have something that I want to promote. But so far, that has never been um, a good strategy for me. There's always been like at least one or two comments when I go off private that I'm like, you know what? wasn't worth it. I'm just going to lock the account again.
1: Is Instagram and TikTok, is that like the best thing that could ever happen for the beauty business and maybe like the worst thing that could ever happen for young women's insecurities?
0: Uh, Yeah, I I think that is spot on. And it's definitely reflected in the sales data, like the the beauty industry, like sales numbers have been skyrocketing for the past however many years, especially throughout the pandemic. Um, I mean, I think there was like a little dip at first, but the beauty industry has never been more successful than it is right now. Um, And a lot of the sort of more extreme things that maybe we would associate only with like celebrities or the uber rich, like 10 years ago, like um, surgical interventions and cosmetic injectables are sort of being democratized. And people of all, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds are really indulging in these behaviors and like saving up for these treatments and like putting themselves at financial risk to indulge in them. And that's definitely... uh, I think in large part due to to social media.
1: Yeah, democratized and normalized, right? Like it took mm-hmm. me a while to to realize that a lot of people are using Botox. Uh, so many. And, 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 and young, you <laughs> know, like, and, and part of this is my just sort of aesthetic obliviousness. I mean, these, I don't know, I don't have a smart comment or a smart question except to say like, isn't this a big thing that things like like these foreign substances that you inject into your face to change the shape of your face are being completely normalized in the culture. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm sure there are arguments to be made either way, but isn't that a big thing?
0: It is a big thing. Yeah. No matter no matter if you view it positively or negatively, it surely is a big thing. I tend to view it negatively. I don't think the normalization of, of all of that is good and I that's also reflected in the research and the data like the more successful the beauty industry is and the more these procedures become normalized and used by like the average person the more our mental health is declining um, we're seeing increased rates of appearance related anxiety, depression, body dysmorphia, facial dysmorphia, disordered eating, self-harm even suicide like this all-encompassing focus on the physical, is really not good for our mental health. like we're very disconnected um, in general as a culture from our true selves. And it's in part because we're calling things like Botox, which is a surface level intervention, self-care. Like Mm -hmm. we're sort of like going all in on the ego and really neglecting the self and pretending that we're not neglecting the self. And that, I mean, does have like very serious psychological consequences, not to mention, you know, all of the physical risks involved in some of these surgeries and procedures.
1: Do you think people are afraid to get old?
0: Oh yeah. I oh, for sure. A, it's, a, I mean, it's a
1: stupid question, right? But like, it seems, it seems that if, Insta, if your image on Instagram is so important to your sense of self or your self-concept, then getting old and visibly old is a disaster.
0: Yes. Yes. 100%. And like, why wouldn't getting old be seen as a disaster? Like, we, I'm going to just speak in like for Western culture in America, but like, we do not treat our elderly particularly well. They're not particularly respected. Um, elder care is a crisis. People are devalued the older they get when we're in this sort of like very hustle culture, productivity culture. Like, when you are less productive, um, you are less valued. And I think it's a very legitimate fear. And I think our culture also doesn't really give us tools to like one deal with that as like a cultural, like systemic issue, like the material effects of ageism. A lot of people just don't even know how to start addressing that. And two, like our culture doesn't really give us the tools to interrogate ourselves and our feelings about that and really equips us with a lot of surface level tools. So like, of course, of course we would be like okay well if i can just erase the signs of aging i don't have to think about this i don't have to grapple with my mortality i don't have to worry about systemic ageism i don't have to think about like what is my life going to actually look like when i'm 70 80 years old who is going to care for me is there like a social safety net there for my health care you know things like that it's and and like this is why i'm so fascinated by beauty is because something as little as like an anti-aging cream like really does point to these giant huge like systems issues and it i like i like to think of like beauty standards as like the physical manifestations of systems of oppression and i think the the anti-aging focus is a, a great example of that where this really is just an outgrowth of, of ageism
1: have you ever thought about covering anything else is this your topic for life
0: i was thinking about that earlier today too I hope that this is not my topic for life. I would like to get to a point where I have um, fully worked through my own feelings on beauty and the beauty industry, and I'm not so obsessed by it anymore. I don't know when that will be or if that will be, but I do think like not thinking of it professionally, but just thinking of it on a personal level, I would like to be able to step outside of this obsession with the beauty industry at some point in my life. And, um, yeah, not care about it as much, but I care about it so much.
1: To what extent are you writing for yourself to work through that obsession versus writing for an audience?
0: I think most of it is writing for myself at this point. Um, and I think I have thought about this a lot, actually, because I have struggled, um, in writing the book that I am under contract to write and it's because the book is sort of like a deeper exploration of, of things that I've already covered. Like it's, and it's been really hard for me to write. And I think it's because I have sort of like released my attachment to a lot of these concepts.
1: It seems to be an effective strategy going by the intense responses you get from readers. There's a lot of engagement. There's a lot of strong replies from people saying this resonates with me or this means a lot to me. What's it been like working on this book? Totally different mode.
0: It's been really difficult. I think... Part of the reason it's very difficult is because I really struggle with permanence. And like, I know people always say like, you know, if something's on the internet, it's on the internet forever, but I have had a very different experience. Like to me, internet writing feels like impermanent and in flux. Like there's always the option to edit. There's always the option to delete. There's always the option to like add an addendum or be like, you know, change something. Uh, If it doesn't resonate with you anymore or just, you know, write another post and update it and send it out to people. And obviously those options are not really there with, with a book. And I find it terrifying that the thoughts that I have now will be like crystallized into print. And that's the way it will be for all of eternity.
1: If it's any constellation I've written a book and published it and, uh, you know, obviously know many people who have done the same thing. And the, the bigger concern is, will anyone pick up my book? Will anyone read my book? So you can probably sort of assume obscurity. And then if it becomes a problem if it, that people read it and pick it up and pay attention to it, that's a nice problem. And hopefully it won't <laughs> won't result in like an army of angry New York Times reading commenters <laughs> trying to take yeah. it to task.
0: That's such a good point.
1: When you got that book deal, that must have seen like. The dream again. Some some working for the Kardashians or something like. As a writer, mm-hmm. surely the the peak, at the pinnacle is is writing the book and getting the book deal. So yeah. I mean, is that true for you? And then you know how are you sort of squaring the difficulty of writing it now and the missed deadlines and all that kind of stuff with that that feeling of like I don't know, good fortune for having the opportunity to do do the pinnacle type thing.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it was huge. It was one of the happiest days of my life when when I got the deal because it just felt so out of reach for a really long time, and I had worked so hard. Like I was freelancing so hard for the probably the three years before I got the book deal. Like just writing all day, every day, to the detriment of like everything else in my life, and I had that goal in my head of just like if I have to write 500 articles a year in order to get my name out there enough to write a book, like that's, that's fine. Um, So it just felt like, it felt like a huge relief. It was like, Oh yes, I did it. I can do it. Um, And also there was like a weird, like sort of like spiritual mystical thing because the day that it was announced on Publishers Marketplace was my wedding date and I had just gotten divorced and I was like, this feels like, you know, this is the thing I, this is what I was supposed to marry. Like I have to be married for <laughs> my life as a writer and my work. So yeah, there was, it, I mean, it was a huge moment for me, which I think made it all the more devastating that I just kept messing it up, which is, yeah, it's something that I'm still trying to like f- figure out how I feel about it. I mean, I've been trying to frame it as I am proud of myself that I have not neglected my family and my personal life for work i am proud of myself that i am somebody who prioritizes the people in my life over a professional accomplishment Um, and i'm really trying to like lean into what i like about the fact that i have sort of um, messed up a lot of professional opportunities in order to focus on my family
1: the book is going to get done. You're going to write the book. You're going to have had the book. I see there's a there's a printout of a mock cover of the book stuck to the fridge behind you. So I know you're thinking about <laughs> it and you're committed to it. At some point, we'll have this conversation and you'll be like, oh, remember? Remember when I was struggling <laughs> with that? And then it will just be something that's done and, and you'll be moving on to the next thing. I hope, man. It will happen. Um, why do you think there's not more writers like you? Why are there not more writers sort of picking this wide open lane to critique the beauty industry and to do it so independently where you're not compromised by um, brands sending you stuff to try out or affiliate link marketing links or advertising conflicts or some other way like this seems like a big opportunity.
0: It does seem like a big opportunity um and I definitely don't want to say that I'm the only one doing this like there are plenty of writers who are critiquing the beauty industry in in their own ways but I think a lot of people don't like, Defect from the beauty industry once they're in it because it's a very um, appealing industry to be a part of. There are a lot of perks to it. There's a lot of glamour. I mean, I think when I was working in the the beauty industry, like freelancing for a bunch of different publications, um, post Kardashians, I sort of got sucked into it all again. And there was a point where I was getting like two thousand dollars worth of merchandise just delivered to my door for free um, mm. every week. You know, it was constant. There were press trips. Um, you know, you're flown all over the world for free to go, you know, get a facial at some exclusive spa. And I do think there is like some sort of prestige to having a byline at, you know, a, a well-known beauty magazine or fashion magazine. It's also probably maybe an easier way to make a living is is selling products. Um, affiliate sales are huge for beauty editors who are now sort of acting as influencers. Like I know a lot of beauty editors have their own Instagram followings and TikTok followings and a big way that they make money because there is almost no money to be made in reporting or writing, you know, their actual jobs. A big way they make money is through, um, affiliate sales and influencing and, and pushing these products. And then it sort of creates this like cognitive dissonance in your head, where if that is the bulk of your income, you are very resistant to any arguments that the industry might not be um, as good as you think it is or as empowering as you think it is. Um, I also know a lot of editors who have reached out who are like, I wish I could be doing what you're doing. I don't like financially see a way out of the industry right now, but I'm like working towards it and have asked me for advice on like, how did I, you know, build up enough savings to be able to like step out of the, the freelancing world and do my own thing. So I, I do think it's on a lot of people's minds. I just, I don't think it's necessarily an easy choice to make in terms of the financial aspect of it.
1: Mm. And you don't have to share details on how much money you're making through your Substack, but I hope you don't mind it. Seems like you're doing really well. And there must be a source of comfort and security for you. And I wonder if that's what you expected, what would, would, would happen. You had to make these big decisions. You had to make these big moves. You had to take a leap into the unknown. Mm -hmm. so how's that been for you
0: it's been incredible I mean like I, I never expected to be making this much money from writing about like a very contrarian view on the beauty industry and not pushing products like one thing I say about the unpublishable it's the only beauty publication that doesn't push products on people and so yeah that feels kind of huge to like not involve products in my work at all and still be making um you know a much better living than I was when I was freelancing and writing, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles a year, just to scrape by. But I also like to point out that like when I made this transition, it was, I mean, it was a terrible time in my life, but it was made a little bit easier by the fact that I was going through a divorce. I moved back in with my parents. I wasn't paying rent. It was a pandemic. So there were a lot of factors that made it possible for me financially to step away and to sort of like put my faith in this other thing. And like, thankfully it worked out. And and thankfully I was living with um, a very supportive family who was there to sort of catch me when I fell through the whole of my life. (laughs) And yeah, I feel like very lucky and very privileged to have all of, all of these like horrible events line up in a way that I could take a break from like the rat race of traditional media and figure out a new pathway. And I know that that's really hard to do. And yeah, the timing the timing of it was huge for me.
1: Do you ever want to go back into the rat race?
0: No. No, I have no desire to. I really love the freedom of this. I also think like the one of the best things that I ever did for like my newsletter is I've never set a schedule. I've never told people to like expect something on Tuesday and Friday, or even expect, you know, four posts a month. I've set zero expectations um, so that I don't feel any pressure. Like I write when I'm inspired to write, and I'll have like a loose outline of things that I want to write in my head, but I have completely eliminated deadlines for myself. And I think like, paradoxically, that's made me um, more inspired to write. So I end up sending out a ton of content. Like no one has ever been like, hey, I didn't really get that much out of this this month. But yeah, just like the freedom of that feels so nice and nobody is complaining about it. So why would I impose those conditions on myself again? I I don't want to.
1: Who do you think your audience is? And why do you think the people who pay a pain you?
0: I think my audience is, I mean, I know this is primarily women. It's um, a little bit older than the age range that I would normally write for when I was freelancing for other publications. So it's a lot of women in their thirties and forties. And I think a lot of them, and this has been feedback I've gotten too, have like arrived at some of these ideas that I write about independently. They have sort of reached their breaking point with the beauty industry. They have have reached a breaking point with like caring about what they look like and dedicating so much of their time and energy and effort in their lives to that and are coming to the point where they see like oh shit i'm aging this doesn't actually pay off ever what am i going to do and somehow find my content and i think it feels um i think it feels like a relief for them i think people pay for my newsletter because it feels like, okay, I can stop caring about this. There is like, there is a pathway in this world where I don't actually have to care about beauty or funnel all of my time and money into my appearance. And in doing that, I'm actually like participating in this, um, sort of like collective liberation of women from oppressive beauty ideals, and influencing the people in my life and in my community and that like radiates outward to sort of change beauty culture on a mass scale. Like I think, yeah, I think people like feeling like there is another pathway that is beneficial to them and beneficial to others.
1: Yeah. It's a serum, but it's not a beauty serum.
0: It's a truth serum.
1: I think I saw that in one of your taglines. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I've used that line before. Yeah.
1: Well, are there other writers in Substack that you think, uh worth paying attention to that deserve a look from other people, anyone you want to pay it forward to?
0: Yeah, so many. I really love Back Row by Amy O'Dell. She looks into the fashion industry and behind the scenes of um, the fashion media in in sort of a similar way that that I do. And she's just, she's brilliant. She's so fantastic. I love How to Cure a Ghost from Faria Roshin. She wrote a book recently called Who Is Wellness For?, And it has really informed a lot of my thinking on beauty culture and the beauty industry, like as a parallel to wellness culture and the wellness industry. And her newsletter explores that more in depth. I think it's so good. Um, I love Heated by Emily Atkin, which is a look at the climate crisis. And it's been really cool to see her grow her platform. Like she just hired on um, a reporter yeah. So it's kind of fascinating to see, like, okay, you can take like an individual substack and like build it out into sort of like this bigger media property. So I find her like very inspiring both in her content and how she's like structuring her work. Yeah. Those, awesome. are, some of, those are some of my go tos.
1: Yeah. Heated as a substack classic. She, Emily was with substack from the very earliest days. And uh, as we've always held her up as an example of some, see what's possible, break through, break free from the machine and you can build your own thing like this. Mm-hmm. Jessica, thank you so much for. um, conversation i'll make sure that all those notes and links to the writers you recommended uh, in the uh, the post that goes out with this episode uh, but thanks for your writing thanks for helping people the way you're helping them thanks for publishing on substack and thanks for the unpublishable
0: well thank you so much for having me i loved it
1: you can find Jessica DeFino's writing on Substack at jessicadefino.substack.com. That's Jessica, D-E-F-I-N-O.substack.com. Next week, we've got Paul Kingsnorth. See you then. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com. R E A D dot dot